It's these unprecedented times. Unprecedented? Unprecedented times <laughs> that we're all in. How I know, are you? How the... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go no, ahead. You, get, the... you got, no. No, you, you go ahead. No, it's you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be chatting with Katie Cawson. Katie Cawson has recently been named the co-artistic director of the I.O. Theater in Chicago. I.O., of course, famously founded by Del Close and Sharna Halpern, Improvisational School and Theater. We're going to talk about her plans for the future. We're also going to discuss her history in comedy and theater, having worked for the Second City, the Annoyance Theater, the Goodman Theater. We're going to talk about all that here on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast with Katie Cawson. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. So, how is Chicago? How are you? How's your pandemic going? (laughs) my pandemic i'm actually i thought i was superhuman because i went all this time never getting covid yeah and then i got it you know it's very chic to have covid right now so yeah now it's in it was out a while ago now it's in yeah did you get it at a makeout party is that probably that's what i I go to lots of makeout parties that's pretty much exclusively i'm hearing that that's the easiest way to get it (laughs) college makeout parties well i I mean the thing was is i mean from the very beginning uh, you know the previous president completely denied that it was real and i frankly hold him responsible for the vast majority of deaths because they didn't they didn't even acknowledge it they didn't address it it like it and it they was openly way worse. mocked people that were concerned. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that you're always going to have the dummies that are just like, oh, you, you're making a big deal out of nothing, or oh, I don't need a vaccination yeah. for this. Or, but, but you're always going to have that element. Right. But it should but be 10% like... of the population, <laughs> exactly. not 50. Exactly. And it, and it should not include the, the leader of the country. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> The one guy with the power to make things happen mm-hmm. is not making anything happen. Yeah, it's crazy. We can certainly spend an hour talking about the insanity. But um, why would we? But why would we? I mean, there. I guess there is questions about whether or not you want to talk about that stuff in your work, you know, and what your, what mm. your mission mm. moving forward is as an improviser. Because you're, you have a Second City background. You have a satirical Correct. background. Is that something you want to get into? Like, how do we address as comedy, improv, sketch people, the madness? Or is it, do you feel your job right now is just to make people laugh so they're not thinking about those things? I think a little bit of both. You know, I did do, you know, this past uh, year, a show, a popular show I had been doing at Second City that, you know, kept going uh, Oh, since when did we she the people an mm-hmm. all uh women's show that um 
you know, this traditional Second City style review, but it was all women and all very, you know, feminist focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we did a gig in we we came back after the pandemic. Well, after being a loose term, but once people were getting back out into the world and saying, you know, fuck it, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna get it. This show will be worth it. The show must go on. Um, And we came back and did a a run here in Chicago last summer, and then we went to San Diego. And obviously this was post-pandemic, and also other resident stages at Second City were coming back. And, yeah, that was kind of a conversation. Everybody was like, how much do we talk about this? Do people even want to see this, (laughs) you know, or or talk about this? And and I, the overwhelming um, sense is not, we didn't need to hit it that hard. We definitely acknowledged it. Like, you know, scenes that kind of, uh, suge- you know, um, lock up kind of t- isolation type uh, mm-hmm. stuff, you, re- you know, referencing isolation. But I, I think people were probably exhausted. Like, so... just being still immersed in this whole pandemic that it was like, yeah, references to it, I think, just so you can have that release of that shared experience that we're all having. But in terms of, like, hitting it super hard, I I think people wanted to be distracted from it. I I mean, I think actors, too, it's like, we don't want all our shit to be about this stupid pandemic, you know, so. Right. Right, right. Trust your gut, and if you don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. Yeah, unless you've got, but you know, again, unless you've got it's some killer, brilliant yeah, yeah, angle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pat McCartney. You you know Patrick McCartney? I uh, know of him. I never knew him. Yeah, I think that's the case for for most people. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, we we did a show uh, a couple weeks ago, and we we haven't talked about. It. We've only been doing like shows once a month for maybe the last three or four months. Mm-hmm. And um, he just, he said COVID, like, I think one of his characters was like, oh, I think I got COVID, something. He just said it really fast as a punchline, and it killed. And that was the first time I was like, oh, wow. well, maybe we can use it as a punchline now. We're not necessarily <laughs> going to dive into whole scenes about it. But that that was kind of good. That was, you know, that was good. Yeah. That's kind of kind of ideal, isn't it? Where you yeah. don't have to do scenes, but you can like throw a you know reference to it in there that like hits. That's that's kind of the best of both worlds in a way. Yeah. But we don't, you know, we don't do. This is an improv show, and we're not like right mandated to do political or social satire. So we don't have to go near it. You know, but it because it's Can I get a suggestion for a pandemic, please? Yeah, any pandemic, <laughs> any pandemic of the last 100, 150 years. Yeah. Black flag. No, that was the dark ages. Come on, get with the times. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yes, but because we're improvising, you know, what's going to come out of our mouths is what's on our minds. So oh, absolutely. Stuff, stuff come out. All right, so listen, can we get into a real interview here? Oh, can we, certainly. Can we get into it? Um, of course, I want to talk to you because you know a lot about improv. You're, you've been doing improv and sketch pretty much your whole life. But oh, now yeah. you've got a new position. You are your co-artistic director of IO. Is, am I getting that correctly? Correct. 
That is true. And how uh, do you feel about it? You excited? You pumped? I'm You're terrified? I'm so excited. All of the above. It's like scared in the best possible way. You know, yeah. that, that good kind of scared where it's like, okay. Let's hope you know what you're doing, but it's super exciting because it's, you know, I'm basically dead inside at this point. So <laughs> <laughs> to have something, and I think a lot of, especially actors, found ourselves with this pandemic like, oh God, what now? You know, yeah, everything's destroyed basically. <laughs> you yeah. know, your whole livelihood has been completely, you know, annihilated for the most part. There was the pandemic. I mean, Me Too was a few years ago. And then mm -hmm. there was the, you know, Black Lives Matter reckoning. Yeah. And a lot of stuff just cratered. It was just too much happening. Um, I, I think maybe in a in a good way. Do you feel like there's an opportunity there to start Absolutely. From yes. That I mean, that is definitely well, pandemic aside, but definitely the Me Too movement and BLM protests. Um, I, you know, exposed institutional racism in in many institutions, but right. specifically our institutions, right? Our comedy yeah. institutions, yeah. and uh, and I think that is a huge opportunity that that certainly this new team at IO because IO was sold, like right. it's completely new ownership and. And the and the guys who bought it are this uh, re, um, commercial real estate developers in Chicago, hmm. and uh, and this is definitely a new venture for them in terms of of buying this theater, and all credit given to them for knowing that they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, so yeah, that's fine hired... as long as you admit it. <laughs> exactly, that's the yeah. And so they hired uh, Mick Napier and Jennifer Eslin, who uh, own and operate the Annoyance Theater mm -hmm. um, here in Chicago, as you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trusted leaders within the community and hired them as consultants to put together this new management team at I.O. The, the new owners are very aware of, of everything going on in the community in terms of um, – all the the BS being called out for all of mm -hmm. the institutions here, and uh, they knew that they needed to do it right. And hiring Mick and Jen to kind of head that head up, not only getting this new management team together, but kind of help facilitating the reopening of the theater. And um, so, yeah, they they definitely this new management team looks more like what we want the improv community to look like and what we want leadership in the improv community to look like and uh come coming from you know theater management experience as well as you know performance ex all, all different kind of discipline type of within you know under the umbrella of uh of what we do and um and it's very very exciting and very thrilling cuz now we have an opportunity to um, create a space that I think everybody has wanted, you know, where it's mm. not so gatekeepy um, and right. not so white, cis, male-centered, straight male-centered. Right. You know, it's right. re-centering the narrative, decolonizing 
what um, what these improv shows look like. Because I mean that yes, for you, you and when you and I started, certainly it, it was absolutely white male dominated, and yeah. and um, you didn't see a lot of diversity. I even noticed that as a teacher from when I started teaching in like the early two thousands up through a few years ago. What my classes looked like changed dramatically from right. all dudes and maybe one or two women to now we have more women. Now we have people yeah. of color in there and people from all different cultures in there, which is amazing yeah. because it just wasn't accessible, I think, outside of like white communities basically before. Yeah. And it just blew up. I mean, look how much it's blown up in our life, you know, in our professional lives. You know, it's, when I was in college, you learned about improvisation as a rehearsal tool, and now every college practically has an improv team. That right. wasn't the case when I was studying theater, you know. There are kids that are choosing what school to go to based on the reputation of their improv groups. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. So like, yeah, I want to major in engineering, but the engineering school with the best improv group is Carnegie Mellon, so. <laughs> right. Um, right. it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, their kids can go and major in comedy at schools and that was There's not comedy studies. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe that's how a you slap your knee far. at a knee slapper. <laughs> spit take 101. Yeah. Spit, yeah, exactly. Jeez. But if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't make a living as a teacher. So <laughs> exactly. I guess it's all good. You know, here's one thing I, I'm, excited to find out or curious to find out. Maybe I'm a little terrified um, because every generation changes comedy, right? Every generation brings a new voice to comedy. I mean, you look at old stuff, it doesn't play today. Even just a, a generation ago, that's not what's considered funny now. And of course, funny is changing because of the internet, but funny is also changing because of the new diversification off stage and on stage. Um, do you think about that? Do you think about how the voice of comedy is going to change because of all the changes that people are actively making to open up the space to everybody? I that that's a really in, yeah, that's a very interesting question because that's definitely something like is I think philosophically about what would I want a theater to look I I don't I can't tell you what it is until yeah. the peop, the bodies are in the building and they're starting to you know, a team, new teams are being developed and, uh, and, and hopefully the people that are attracted to coming into the space is, uh, a lot more diverse than you see traditionally. And, um, you're giving them a voice. I, I think that kind of thing is very incremental. I, a, I don't think it's that in terms of, I mean, we see that because we see that in entertainment right now, right? We're seeing a lot more uh, kind of diverse voices um, mm -hmm. creating shows. Yeah. And as a, you know, a middle-aged white, straight white woman watching these shows that are, you know, made up of perhaps a completely different culture than me, I see so much <laughs> that I relate to in mm. it, right? And yeah. so um, I think... There's that's all. There's always just as human beings, there's so much shared uh, experience and so much shared um, sensibility. Um, right. But also, I think that just expands when you expand the 
the voices that are in there that kind of broadens your point of view and your experience. And, and so I think it's incremental. It's not like all of a sudden you walk in one day to an improv show or a class and it's like, oh, I don't understand what any of these people are talking about. <laughs> right. You know, the jokes like... are going to still be jokes. We're all still going to laugh at someone who can't open a door you know, or right. falls downstairs. You know, there's certain, there's an old adage, you know, the, the way to be universal is to be specific first. Yeah. You know, with your yeah. own experience, culturally, personally, whatever it is. You know, there's always been groups that separate themselves um, based on, you know, sort of a homogeneous makeup of the group. You know, you'd, you'd get your all women groups. You'd get your all African-American groups, your Asian groups, you know, or, you know, we're all non-white uh, groups as a way, you know, part of it is, I'm sure, marketing, you know, how can we make ourselves different? But really, it's like, we need to carve out a space for ourselves so we can do our stories. Um, and, you know, the audiences then would, you know, the, it's going to draw an audience that attracted to comedy or improv that has a certain point of view, right? M maybe they identify within that group. I always felt like, you know, maybe it was some level of guilt or something that like, well, I hope that all those groups understand that they can play anything, you know, that they don't just have to do scenes about, you know, having immigrant parents or, or you know, whatever the cliche oh, yeah. mm -hmm. is, you know, in the way that, you know, the kids in the hall always played women as women. Yeah. It was not men commenting on women or Dratch and Faye. I'm sure you've seen Dratch and Faye, the way they played men. Uh, in their show. And, and I remember at the time seeing that kind of as a revelation, like, oh yeah, of course, right. It's only two women in the show. So if they want male characters, they have to play them and they don't have to only play female characters, right? They can play male characters. <laughs> yeah. Doing a female centric show, you know, for the past few years, and certainly there were plenty, it, it, we would get these comments, which are kind of sometimes backhanded compliments, of, you know, we had predominantly female audiences that uh, were drawn to the show, but lots of dudes came to, many of which might have been dragged there by their significant other, that then we'd meet after the show and they'd be like, that was real. Like, they were just surprised at how... <laughs> right. well, the comedy show <laughs> I went to actually was funny. And it was chicks. Um, yeah. <laughs> Not that they were necessarily surprised that women were funny. They were more surprised that they related as much as right. they and were able to laugh at as much as they laughed at. I, right. not, not that they had a specific idea of walking in there that women weren't funny and I'm not going to understand any of these jokes or relate to any of these jokes. It's just... I think that's the element of surprise where it's like, okay, I'm going to go to this all Asian show or this all, you know, whatever group uh, show and I'm not going to relate. And then you start, you're surprised by how much you do relate. And then also the stuff that is completely outside of your frame of reference that is like, oh, <laughs> you know, that yeah. element of surprise works in your yeah. favor. And it's interesting because I, you know, I had this conversation with Jennifer Eslin, you know, as we were talking about the artistic direction of the theater and all this, where, you know, and this is such a kind of typical uh, white lady kind of thing where it's like, I don't, why do we have to have groups that are all black or all Asian or all this or all that? And yeah. it should be, every group should look like, 
you know, everybody should make up of everybody. That's true diversity. And and she brought up a really good point where she's like, you know, in I completely understand where you're coming from, but in talking to, you know, people from these different groups, there is a safety and um, and a, a, a representation aspect to here's this group that's all people of color, you know, mm-hmm. and it is there is a certain safety and um, and represent, representation aspect to it that is important when you're not the dominating culture, you know. Absolutely. And as a member yeah. of the dominating culture, it's easy for me to say like, why do we have to talk about race? Right? You hear white people saying that all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why does it have to be about race? And it's just like, well, because it is. And you're, it's easy for you to say when you're the person on top. Yeah, it always has been. You just were benefiting from it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so. I mean, that's that's great that that's sort of part of your mission statement. Um, here's the other half of, I guess, what you're heading into is the legacy of I.O. Mm-hmm. Uh, Del Close. I mean, I.O. is regarded around the world as one of the centers of modern improv and comedy do you what what's what's going through your your head as you yeah step into it well that those are that's conversations uh we're having right about yeah not you don't want erasure of the past yeah. because obviously dell and and sharna created this theater and 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 developed it into being exactly what you just said, a center for all of that. And that's a big deal. And that's um, important to acknowledge, but there is also the problematic side of that. Right. right. <laughs> you know, right. Um, you know, Del Close, well, with Sharna and with um, uh, Del Close in particular, right. It, that was always the joke. Del Close hates women. Yeah. But there's some truth to that comedy. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really tricky, you know, that you don't want to lionize someone or or make someone sainted because of their, you know, because of their contributions um, without, you know, looking that, you know, it was a person with with flaws and 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 failings as as well as some great accomplishments in the world of improv. Like I said, that'll still be acknowledged, but it's not going to be so like we're not going to have a big painting of his face on the wall that was Mm. there before, you know, um, it's acknowledging it without folk, it being the central focus. Oh, that's great. I think that's really great. Especially because, you know, my personal perspective is like Dell was one of several improv philosophers, thinkers, uh, and there have been many since his time that have taken the work much further. Um, and I always felt it was sort of, uh, not to say it was unfair, but like, I don't know why Dell became the person that everyone's like, oh, he invented all of improv when it was invented by a lot of people and continues to be reinvented and reinvented and reinvented. And like any art form, when we sort of get rigid as to this is the one way to do it, it kind of becomes boring and predictable and, and maybe even a bit right, right. deadly. Exactly. That's the point. So what's the curriculum and what's what what are you guys gonna draw from if you're gonna, you know, reduce Dell? Are you pulling in Paul Sill stuff and Viola Spol and stuff or, or your own stuff? Rachel Mason, who is good, who's the director of education and uh you know, formerly director of education at Second City, she an IO person she was on Dell Close's last wow. uh team that he coached, Limburg Babies, and 
Um, and she was, in fact, we were talking about this. She's like, you know, Delph had said the Herald was mm. dead. In the 90s. <laughs> a long time. She's like, we were doing, yes. And, and, and the, you know, when she was doing Lindbergh babies, you know, he was experimenting with them because he's like, the Herald's wow. dead. You know, and IO didn't create the Herald, let us. Let us right. remember that. I believe right. it was the committee which Del Close came from. And um, so the Herald is still, you know, a very uh, important part of that. But it's the focus is going to be more long form mm-hmm. in general, the Herald being just a, a piece of that. But exploring other forms, developing new forms, creating a process. Um, utilizing long form to create original, you know, new works to create written oh, wow. material, much yeah. like Second City has their yeah. process um, to create sketch. Like, how can we use the long form? Which I mean, people do anyway, right? I mean, that always has been my impression of of long form is like, oh, this and the Herald specifically is like, oh, this kind of teaches you story yes. structure, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like it's a very kind of writerly yep. approach. Beginning, middle, end, right? If you can nail three beats, you can nail a story. And we can certainly have the debate whether, because I, I don't know if you ever had in much interaction with Bernie Solins, Um No. But when I first worked at Second City in the Turing Company, you know, he was still around and he would do like, little workshops every once in a while, which are basically like lectures. Right. <laughs> but, um, but he was very much a believer in improv as process and not as product. Right. Like he was very, and at that point in the late 90s is when you, uh, improv as product was like really hidden, right? Mm-hmm. That was really popular. Yeah. IO and annoyance and 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 all the different the in New York and Chicago, everywhere and um and so you know you can always have and we both I'm sure you and I have seen and done enough improv that was like that was not worth the five dollars <laughs> I know it's only five dollars and still you feel guilty that those four people in the audience just watched, yeah you know yeah but it still um, happens it still happens. Absolutely, yeah. and but that's the exciting. I think now people are much more aware of improv, certainly than they were when I started out. Yeah. Like it, the world at large, you know. Oh, um, yeah. It used to be like I told people I did improv, and they're like, "Oh, you mean like Seinfeld?" And it's like, "What? Exactly. I don't even know what your exactly. thought well, process is." What you mean? Like, well, tell me, oh, you do improv? Tell me a joke. Yeah, tell me a joke. I What's remember, your best joke? It's like. Oh. So true. At every, I, you know, waited tables the first five years I lived in Chicago. And that's when I was taking classes and all that stuff. And, you know, you talk to customers saying, oh, I do improv. And they're like, oh, tell me a joke. <laughs> and people still would come to Second City. Who's on it? Who's on, who's on at Second yeah. City tonight? Yeah, Seinfeld going to be here? <laughs> So, yeah, I think people are a lot more savvy now. But going back to your original question about the the program, um, it's going to be a focus on forms, Mm -hmm. on long forms, as opposed to 
Harold, 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 Harold. Do you believe in short form anymore? Like is short form. I remember when I was learning, you know, at, at, at second city, you would learn a whole mm-hmm. bunch of short form games and you'd even put games in your, you know, shows. Well, even in Turco. Oh yeah. 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 In Turco, you do, you do game, you do spot scenes and, and, uh, fill in the blank and, you know, the, what's Highly the one you write up your own piece of paper? Seen oh, yeah. from a hat, lines from a hat, or whatever that's called. Line, line. That's yeah. uh, well, it's funny because they're how they're different names for the same game. That's blind line or uh, sentences blind is line. another uh, term for. Well, I did comedy sports um, early on uh, when mm-hmm. I lived here, and which is which was so much fun. And there's definitely a value. At, it is more accessible to audiences. Like I always joked, like it was, it's like kind of the fast food of improv because it's right. Which is, which if we're talking about improv as product is way more accessible to an audience than long form. I think Um, to, to your average Joe blow who wants to go see a comedy show just because it's, you know, all the scenes are timed, the whole artifice of two teams competing against each other with a referee. Right. So it's all timed. Nothing's get, so if something's tanking, you can be out of there real quick and move on right. to the next thing. Um, as, a, as a performer, I found uh, that incredibly helpful in ways as, as my, you know, as time went on in terms of auditioning, um, you know, just mm. having to make a, a, an immediate choice, you know, as, a mm. por- yeah. as opposed to long form, where it's like, can I, can I get a word? And then maybe 10 minutes goes by before you start figuring out what the piece is <laughs> yeah, about or absolutely. the scene is about, absolutely. you know, which is not fine. One of our expressions, yeah. right. One of our expressions in my group is the first 10 minutes don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's like giving ourselves permission to F around. And we always have an opener to the show mm-hmm. that's pre-recorded. So at least we get some, you know, success right off the top that they're like, okay, so we don't have to, we don't have to rush. But I, I totally, I did some short form when I was living in, uh, on Maui for a bit and I was because I was like, oh yeah, Maui, Maui, it's an island, uh, <laughs> part of the Hawaiian islands. Your home on Maui whatever. with, uh, Woody Harrelson and Bill Maher and, and, um, uh, Owen Wilson. I would see Owen Wilson at the local supermarket all the time, and I would have to pretend I didn't know who he was because I was cool like that. Whatever. It's not a big deal. This isn't about. It's about this isn't about how cool I am. Um, but I was doing short form, and I was terrified because of that notion of like, oh, now I actually have to perform. The there's a different expectation, be, between my fellow players, but mostly the audience. Like if I'm not getting a laugh, the game's only going to last three minutes. Mm-hmm. I've got to get at least a laugh by, you know, two two minutes, 45 seconds. And that was not a rhythm I was used to. Well, isn't that interesting that you bring up the got to get a laugh thing? It, that definitely, I don't know, excuse me, if you've clocked this at all, um, it, you know, the importance like you learn when you're learning improvisation, like you both and both you and I went to the Second City Conservatory and you know uh, did other types of groups and all that kind of stuff. And when you learn it, you learn about the quality of the laugh as opposed to the quantity of mm. the laughs, right? right? Like at least right. once right. upon a time. And so 
you know, uh, as opposed to getting a laugh every 3.5 seconds, uh, you're building up to something that the, is going to have a bigger payoff is right. kind of that, you know, delayed gratification versus instant gratification. And it, and it seems like it, certainly I've noticed that, especially continuing to do shows for Second City off and on over the years, how that sensibility changes where it's just like, well, it, it, it's it's not getting, you know, this scene it's not getting enough laughs. Well, but it, right. it's a really good scene, though. Right. Something still can be a good scene that isn't like people dying of laughter throughout the whole thing. And that right. has definitely gotten a little bit lost uh, in terms of, like, the sketch side of things, as I've noticed. And yeah. certainly that informs you as an improviser of like, I got to get a laugh, got to get a laugh, got to get a laugh, as opposed to focusing on my character and what's going on in the scene and my relationship. You know what I mean? Like, that's always kind of the battle, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think that's because of an influence of um, YouTube and yes. TikTok and Vine and all that stuff? That, that 100% stuff is just... attention span okay. is uh, yeah. for myself. I mean, I got to say, like, it's, I've noticed how it affects my what I have the patience for as an audience mm-hmm. member now. And yeah. that kind of bumps me out a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah. I went to see um, a, The Hangman on Broadway. It's this Irish drama. And like oh, I was yeah. yelling the whole time, this is not funny enough from the house. <laughs> Just yeah, to let them would. know that they needed to pick up the pay. I haven't seen that show. That was not true. It's not a true story. <laughs> oh, I wish not it had story. been, though. I know. Just I was trying to think of a different show. show. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, I still do that. If I see a show, I give them, I write notes. You know, I'm outside the minutes and I'm like, I have a few notes. And then you wait um, by the stage door. <laughs> that is like absolutely. Out. Each actor has their own slip of paper with their personal notes on it. Daniel Craig was very appreciative when I was outside <laughs> Macbeth the other night. I was like, have you thought about a Scottish accent? And he was like, I haven't. Thank you. Anyway. Um, so let's, um, since we've taken a comedy break, why don't we get into your personal history? Oh, God. And I, I'm always curious about how people discovered the comedy and the work. You grew up in Virginia, in the in the suburbs, I'm assuming? The suburbs of our nation's capital. Yeah, in Springfield, Virginia, um, same place Dave Grohl's from. So we basically grew up together. Um, wow, you guys are like besties. Pretty much. Um, no, I wish. Uh well, Kevin, if you want to talk about my journey and how I got into improv, you are largely to blame for that. Oh, um, boy. Full, full oh, disclosure. Boy. I think last Apologies. time I, I know when you and your, your fam came to visit uh, Chicago a couple years ago, I, I blamed you for my life. But yeah. um, Yikes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I grew up outside D.C. in uh, Northern Virginia, Springfield, Virginia, and um, studied, went to Radford University down in South the southwestern part in the Blue Ridge Mountains in the New River Valley, uh, kind of near mm-hmm. Virginia Tech. Studied uh, theater there, and then, like, right, well, when I was still in college and right out of college, um, like, kind of my first paying acting jobs at Bush Gardens, Williamsburg. Um, mm-hmm. Hold for applause. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you. Uh, and, and I also worked at a children's uh, theater. You know, y'all, I always say as an actor, you got to do your, your children's theater tour of duty. And mm-hmm. um, I did that. And, and it was when I was working at Bush Gardens that there were several performers that worked there that were from this, from the Chicago area. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there was, and I met you through a friend of somebody that I worked with, Joe Novoselsky, if you mm-hmm. recall. Who I went to high school with. Okay, that's what it was. Um, I couldn't remember yeah. how you were connected to him. But yeah. he was friends with somebody. I worked at Bush Gardens, and he had come to visit, and I had kind of gotten to know him a little bit. And then he did, he had a New Year's Eve party in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. New Year's Eve of 91, going into 92. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had already, my friend Heidi Ammon and I had already um, decided we were going to move to Chicago. We heard from our friends that were from this area what a great theater scene it was. We wanted to move somewhere uh, to a city. New York seemed a little bit too, I think, daunting to us at that point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, let's go to Chicago. So that was already in the works. I go to this New Year's Eve party in Philadelphia, meet you, and you're like, Mm -hmm. I live in Chicago, and, you know, I do improv and stuff like that. Oh, cool, great. Oh, well, yeah, we'll look you up when we're there, blah, blah, blah. Cut to a few – I moved – in January of 92 to Chicago, I run into you on the street randomly. Mm-hmm. On, I remember exactly where it was. It was on Broadway near my mm-hmm. first apartment in Chicago, near Broadway and Irving. You, we, I saw you on the street. We walked by each other, and it was one of those things where we both stopped. We turned around and looked at the other and was like, turn it. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, my God. You tell me yeah. about Second City Conservatory because you were in the conservatory at that point. I think you were starting up your level five shows at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, you had an improv group that you didn't know exit on Wednesday nights, Bang Bang. And you yeah. invited Heidi and I to be a part of it. And yeah. then I started doing the conservatory. And that, I mean, that just put me on the whole. Um, improv path had you thought about comedy before like did you grow up loving comedy or you, yes. you were just like 100%. sidetracked on your way to theater okay 100 I who did loved... you like as a as a kid oh my god i my I, carol burnett was huge i loved the carol Absolutely. burnett show i loved yeah imitating all those characters uh you know mama and mrs wiggins and mm-hmm. uh, like all the Oh, I loved Carol Burnett so much. I know this is a really unpopular opinion. Even though I watched I Love Lucy, all because all those old 50s shows were on the local television station. So, like, if you were homesick from school, you'd watch all those old shows. And yeah. I would watch I Love Lucy, but Lucille Ball was not a big – that she's never been one for me, per se. Carol Burnett, mm-hmm. much more so. Um, yeah. And I would yeah. say Gilda Radner early on. And definitely oh, yeah. Steve Martin, because I remember mm-hmm. as a kid, I loved Steve Martin. My brother bought me a Steve Martin comedy album for Christmas, and I was listening to it, and I think he said something suggestive, so my dad took the album away from me. <gasps> <laughs> I know Steve Martin, who is so not dirty at all, but he must yeah. have done something vaguely. 
Um, Richard Pryor yeah. was a big one, especially when I started working at a video store in high school and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, had access to uh, so much more comedy. But, you know, yeah. wa- but I watched all that stuff, SNL and Monty Python, and um, I loved all that. And I certainly, as I started doing theater, like in high school and then in college, the comedy stuff was definitely way more appealing, and I just felt like I had more of a knack for it, but I, I didn't real, you know, I didn't think of it in terms of like, I want to do comedy. You know, it was more like, I want to be an actor and this is what I like doing the most. I didn't even know there was this whole world of comedy that I could train in and do. Like, I didn't even know about it. I mean, Second City did come to my college and I thought it was really cool, but I didn't know that it was like a place I could go and study or anything like that. I don't even remember how I found out that Second City taught classes. You know, I had read Wired, the book about John Belushi, and I had read The Compass by Janet Coleman about uh, the precursor of the Second City, the Compass Theater. Um, But I don't know how I learned. Maybe when I saw the touring company, somebody mentioned they teach classes in Chicago. I got to be honest, I have no idea how I found out that you could take classes in improv. I mean, pre-internet, how did we learn anything? I know. Isn't that crazy that you, I mean, well, obviously I, I learned about it just from you, um, from just people. Just running into someone. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how, it's not as if you could search online like comedy classes or anything like that. Right. Right. Now you can. It's like, and there's one in your hometown. Do you... Um, I mean, I think it's pretty great that you've you've got this new position. Do you still have like the showbiz ambitions that drive drove you as a kid? You know, like I imagine if you like Carol Burnett, you imagine yourself hosting your own comedy variety show or getting on Saturday Night Live or something like that. Has that, well, that ever brings gone me away to my Kickstarter? Still... Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I just need seventeen million dollars. You know, I'll tell you, I never really saw myself as an SNL type of performer. I don't think Um, like a lot of people who moved to Chicago specifically to do comedy or second city or any of uh, the comedy theaters here. um, There are many of them that are like, I, how do I get on Saturday night live? This is how, okay. Then I'm going to move to Chicago. I'm going to do this. And that's how, you know, hopefully get seen. Um, that was never really – I never really saw – felt driven by that. Like, I want to get – I just loved doing comedy. And I mm-hmm. I guess maybe because I came from more of uh, a theater, you know, just background, that it was just another form of theater to me that um, I just really loved the spontaneous – aspect of it of just being able to make it up as you go along and mm-hmm. do comedy and, and comment on social and political stuff through comedy i think that's what was really attractive to me um in terms of ambition you know yeah i still and will continue to i, I think the the bug to for live performance is is gone on if i'm really honest mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not itching to get up on stage 
Um, I think I've done enough eight show a week type of shows in the last few years that I'm, I feel like I'm, so this, I'm, this is more of a recent thing. This is, the, I think so. Maybe because I've been yeah. doing so much of the same thing for so long, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my attempts to try and broaden that, uh, which, I mean, that's a whole other conversation I had with a, a casting director from the Goodman. I had taken, uh, like an auditioning for the theater class with him. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a one-on-one with him where I was like, listen, how does a person like me whose resumes all comedy, how do I get into the room to audition for these shows at Goodman and at Steppenwolf mm-hmm. and at all these, I mean, like I would still love to do that kind of stuff. And it was very discouraging because he's like, mm-hmm. There, and it it really pisses me off about, I don't know if it's this way in New York or other theater scenes, you know, Chicago theater actors take themselves very seriously. Very seriously. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's just like, you know, if I'm a Bob Falls, who's the artistic director and, and frequent direct, director at the Goodman, you know, um, I'm going to look at this resume and I'm going to feel like I can't necessarily trust that you're able to see a character through an entire play because your experience isn't that i mean it's so narrow and i don't i'm not holding this against the the casting guy from goodman he was just being frank with me which i really appreciated he gave me the real you know and he's he's you know, with sketch, it's all surface, right? That's why it's called a sketch. It's just a sketch of these right. people and of this situation and everything. And so there's a lack of faith that a person who's done predominantly sketch type of comedy and improvisational comedy, that they can grab onto a character and see that character through the arc of an entire play. Right. Which right. kind of bums me out that that is, I understand the logic there to a degree well i but... i disagree with the logic mm-hmm. but i understand that they need a, a a means of filtering people in and out yeah everybody wants the gig we need to narrow the number of people we're even looking at exactly they got to put up some barrier to entry and chicago it's very easy to do that because there's already divisions between chicago's comedy traditions and the Steppenwolf, Goodman-inspired, more serious Chicago-style theater. They're seen as separate worlds, separate pools of people. Yeah, the perception, absolutely. And and he even he's like, casting is about risk management. Mm, and to well, your is, point, yeah. yeah, exactly. To your point, it's like, okay, I got to know who of these people that we're going to bring in to audition for this role, they got to be people that we know can do the job and we're not going to go through this whole process and, Oh, Hey, yeah, their background's comedy, but let's see, you know, if they can play, be in uh, Martha and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, like right. they're not going to take that stab right. per se. Um, but at the same time, you know, I listen to people like Vince Gilligan on a podcast 
um, mm-hmm. who's brilliant, you know, creator of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and yeah. all of that. And you look yeah. at how many comedy people have been in those shows. Yeah. And these I mean, are deeply serious shows. I mean, we're talking about Bob television. Odenkirk is the star. Yeah. You know, Odenkirk is yeah. Second City. And I mean, granted, and he's the star. I know television and theater aren't the same, but I mean, but we're, if we're just taking it to drama and comedy, and I so appreciated Vince Gilligan. He's like, I know if somebody comes from comedy, they can do anything. The same cannot yeah, be said from people who come from drama, purely drama. I can't. Absolutely. I don't 100%. know that they can do comedy. But I know there's com- way more proof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's more Steve Carell's than there yeah. are, and I'm trying to think of what, what would be the opposite parallel. Someone who Robert De Niro is maybe the only person who was dramatic who then segued to comedy. Yeah. Making yeah, and and his comedy in you know, and he's in the comedy stuff he's done has been great because he's been cast appropriately. You know, right? Um, right. Not he's not doing he's slapstick the, and right. Yeah. No takes. Um, so, what was the what was my original? The original point? question is: Are you <laughs> boxes? Are you know, it has has the <laughs> boxes of briefs. No, my question was: What town were you from? Anyway, um, <laughs> no, it has the fire have, gone goal, out. Like my what's... personal aspirations. I think that's. <laughs> Yeah, has a fire gone out? You know, you still you still want to do it. Do, can you figure out a way to get to the to the Goodman or Steppenwolf, or or is hearing that from a casting director put that fire out? Or, or are you going to write a play that you can star in so everyone right. in Chicago turns their head and says, "Oh, I mean, that's what do we the way here? to do anything now, isn't it? Like if you if you you got to yeah. make your own shit." You know, right. and a lot of people are and, and having great success with that, and, and but also not. Um, you know, right. I think, which is another reason this new position has come at such a great time is, you know, you, you struggle. Uh, you can only be a starving artist. And I certainly went past probably the expiration date that most people mm-hmm. would, have, you know, um, yeah. throw, throw in the towel. Um, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about Chicago is you can have uh, some semblance of a career in the arts without necessarily, you know, making the big time. Um, And that's that's all I ever wanted. Like, in terms of long-term goals, it's like I would just like to make a living doing what I love to do. Like, fame or being a a television or movie, like, that was never a driving force for me. I probably could have used a little bit, probably, of more of that fire in my belly um, Mm -hmm. if I, you know, wanted to be a more successful actor. But I just wanted to make a living. And and I've done that off and on, you know, better livings to worse livings, (laughs) you know, that whole roller coaster of of doing what we do. and. You know, at, at a certain point, it's just like, okay, what am I, you know, especially with this pandemic, I think a lot of people were faced with, okay, what reassessing their lives and what am I doing? Right. How am I going to survive? Everyone's just switching positions. All the people that were in office jobs are like, I'm going to now go pursue my passion. Yes. And all the people that were starving artists are like, maybe I need a job. It's 100%. Everyone's just switching. It's so yeah. funny. I didn't even think about that, but you're so right. Yeah. Um, so I was at that point where it's like, you know, I don't, I I need to secure somewhat of a future. You know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. So 
So I don't. Yeah. I, it's good that I don't have any. I have a a, a dog son. I need to support now, mm-hmm. Pedro. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't have like a partner that can uh, carry the weight in terms of you know supporting me or anything like that. And so yeah, I was at the point where it's like okay, I got to look into a real job. If I, I, I want something, I want a salary. I want some sense of security um, at this point in my life. And if that means I have to go outside of what I've been doing my whole life, then I guess so. And, uh, but, and so I started applying for some of those jobs and interviewing for some of these, you know, quote unquote, real jobs. And, and then this, uh, listing came up for the co-artistic director job and um and I was like okay I think you know I to be fair I was never an IO person you know mm-hmm. I I didn't I didn't go through their program I did a couple random shows there uh, uh, over the years um but I was never like on a team or any of that but obviously I knew the culture I worked with you know, so many people that did that. I mean, it's all, you know, um, incestuous here. You know, all the different mm-hmm. – everybody works at all the different theaters. So I, I knew it, and I and at first I thought that would be a detriment that I didn't come from an I.O. background, but uh, mm-hmm. I quickly learned that that was an asset because, you know, I'm somebody that – under, has been part of this community for uh, years, and mm-hmm. um, you can say it seven, eight years <laughs> for um, six months, uh, and mm-hmm. um, and certainly understand where a lot of the grievances lie as a, mm-hmm. as a performer, uh, having dealt with the BS at you know other comedy theaters in Chicago. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's a through line through all of them, except for annoyance. I will say annoyance is, as many people have said, the safe, has been and always has been the safest space. Uh, and that's, that's so you know, funny because yeah. from the outside, it seems yeah. like the most dysfunctional environment ever. Like it just from their shows, you know, yeah. co-ed the- prison sluts or whatever. It's like, are these people just on drugs all day? Like what must be going on in there? But it's a testament to McNapier, who is a real sweetheart who just loves people and loves the work, and the people he brought in to help him do it. I guess. Yeah, and 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 his you know partner Jennifer. Absolutely, it's it it is right. that's so funny. It is the most subversive of the comedy theaters where you're going to see some, you'll see some just some nasty shit that they you won't yeah. see other places. <laughs> the most vile. Yeah subversive yeah. stuff ever and um and yet <laughs> and not to say there haven't been problematic people that have passed through there but institutionally they have not been problematic just because of Nick and Jennifer being who they are and um you know so so being a person that has been a performer in this for so long and experienced and had the same grievances that people currently have or have had for a long time, I think is definitely an asset in doing this position. And then my co-artistic director, who, you know, has a completely different set of experiences. He's much younger. um, Mm -hmm. And it's great to have that, those generational differences 
because mm-hmm. it's like still as and I, I'm sure you especially as we've had this reckoning in the past few years as a society when it comes to, you know, um, uh, white privilege and, and and all the stuff we're kind of really talking about um, in our culture. Um, you know, I think I'm, you know, doing what we do keeps us current, right? It keeps us a lot more current if, than if we had gotten married out of college and moved to the suburbs and had families, right? Like, right. This right. key, this work keeps you young, you know, right. <laughs> which is right. great because you need to know what's going on, not just news-wise, but like culture-wise, all that kind of stuff. So, absolutely. As woke as I like to think I am for a middle-aged white lady, you know, I have blind spots. God knows I have blind spots, and so it's really nice yeah. to have somebody from a different generation. You know, he he is. Uh, this black man that is incredibly um he's just a really great he's so smart and he's so interesting and he has such a different he has different not opposing but different viewpoints um and points of Mm -hmm. view that he's coming from that uh you know we luckily were so didn't know each other before we got hired and then after we got hired like just got together to kind of mind meld and there's so much that we're on the same page about, and yet so much different that I can bring and then that he can bring to it, which is, uh, which is really right. exciting. That's awesome that you have someone to collaborate with, that you have shared interests and shared experience, but you also have a lot to teach each other and and bring to the table and 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 help you grow. That's that's a that's a good recipe for a, a strong partnership. I think is that there is some intersection, but then there's also stuff outside of that intersection. I feel like I'm giving a TED talk. <laughs> Thank you for the my master class. Um, that's that's the beauty of it, though. That I mean, that's the, where I see a difference. I don't know, maybe this is too much of a tangent. The difference between, you know, uh, us middle-aged folks that still do this type of stuff, do improv, you know, ensemble-based comedy, as opposed to stand-ups that I love, stand-ups that I love, that are middle-aged white men that are mad Mm -hmm. about the cancel culture or they can't say this Mm -hmm. joke without getting in trouble or that joke without getting in trouble. And it's like, really? Like, I don't think that's true. I think that's, I think that uh, is, it's like the satanic panic of the 80s. Yes. I think people are just inventing it. No one's getting canceled. I mean, not, you know what you I mean? Like, some people are getting called joke. out on Twitter for sure. Right. And it's, yeah. Well, and I like, that's why Sarah Silverman, I, I think, has the best attitude about it because she's straight up has said, I've lost opportunities because of stuff that I did or said in the past that was problematic, and I just have to take it. She's like, mm-hmm. and I take it, and I learn from it, and move on. Because yeah. to say, oh, I cancel, you know, it, it's it's just. Yeah. That stuff, that the, the, the tricky thing is for a lot of people who say that, you know, quote, unquote, edgy, outrageous stuff, they benefit from saying that stuff mm-hmm. and they don't understand that the window for that benefit 
has closed and that maybe it wasn't the best thing to begin with. And, you know, that I think that's the hardest thing. You know, the example for me was always the Beastie Boys. I loved the Beastie Boys coming up. Mm. And they went through several evolutions, even going so far as changing their lyrics when they re-released their albums to take out sort of anything misogynistic or, yeah, you know, anything hurtful that could be perceived as hurtful. And I was like, if the fight for your right to party guys can evolve, <laughs> then I can evolve. Exactly. Too. Exactly. 100%. Like, I just noticed that with my own family. Again, I, I, I credit doing what we do for keeping me kind of not in that place of like, well, guess you can't say such and such anymore. You know, without getting canceled or without somebody freaking out. You know, like, it's obnoxious probably to my family members. But <laughs> mm, All right. So here's some of my uh, my other, like, kind of standard questions that I like to ask everyone, uh, especially people who've been around for a while. Who – is there a lesson you got from a teacher? This is, a, you know, in regard to the work, improv or comedy. Is there a lesson – that you still rely on that you got early on? I know there was a, that I still rely on that I got. I'll tell you a lesson that I learned that I wish I had gotten early on. I don't mm. know if that's, because mm. I, you know, in terms of improv training, I, the Second City Conservatory was it. Mm -hmm. And then the rest was learned just by playing with amazing people and, you know, learning from them. And then when I started teaching at the annoyance, I um, had to kind of submerse myself in McNapier's book and his mm -hmm. whole, you know, I needed to have a fuller understanding. Like I knew all the kind of basic stuff you're going to teach in improv classes. Right. But I needed to learn the annoyance approach, which is very much um, cause you, you always learn, right, in beginning improv classes about taking care of your partner, taking care of your partner, focus on your mm -hmm. partner, which, of course, is completely valid. But at, at Annoyance, it was like focus on yourself first, making a choice. And that doesn't mean F everybody else. It's like making a choice for yourself first, making a character choice for yourself first. And it could just be that uh, you're the guy who uh, – you know, it could be a physical tick. It could be a, a, an emotional choice. It can be, you know, some sort of character choice that you make, and then you, and then you do it. Notice that you did it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it. Just that idea of you have to be able to love yourself before you can truly love other people. Mm -hmm. it, it, that kind of approach to improvisation of taking care of yourself before then you can take care of everybody else and you're going to make everybody right. else feel grounded and comfortable in the scene because you've made a firm choice for yourself. Uh, whereas yeah. I think I took the take care of everybody else approach to my own detriment sometimes, you know yeah. what I mean? Where it was like, I yeah. didn't make a strong yeah. choice for myself because it's, Oh, I have to support what my partners are doing. Of right. course you have to do that. Be giving gifts. Yeah. Yeah greatest gift to your partner is a strong choice on your end yeah so why not why not give them something to, to play off of 
and again, I had Mick as level one and level five at Second City Conservatory. Oh, lucky you. And his lesson that I got from him was he said, F it. Just yeah. do it. And he didn't say F it. He said the F word. And and I, two things. One, a teacher was using the F word. And, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. This is so subversive. <laughs> and, and also just that idea of he was just saying, like, you already know how to do this work. It's in us. Just do it. Don't don't get in your own way. That was a huge, huge lesson, which I still, you know, a lot of people say follow the fear, which is a Del Close quote of like, go for that thing that you're a little scared to do or say, you know, mm-hmm. that's where you, you know, there's, there's something there to explore, but I much prefer mix. Just do it. Like, it doesn't even matter if it's making you afraid or if it's, if it's bringing you joy, if it's about love, if it's about fear, whatever it is. Just follow that thing and, and, and go go for it. It's true 100%. that, you know, just saying, being able to say fuck it yeah. is a place that you, is a is such a stronger place to start out from because we kind of psych ourselves out so often of like, God, I hope I, I better be funny. You better pick a kid. Yeah. Like all the shit that like puts you in your head as opposed to fuck it. I'll, I'll go out there and suck. I don't care. Yeah. This can suck and it's fine. And it's like, obviously, the longer you do that, the more fine that is to suck. You know, in fact, the the suckiest shows can be the funnest ones because you're sucking with everybody else on stage. And when you realize that this is tanking and you all collectively realize it, then you have the most fun. (laughs) Because you're like, we're going to all go down together. (laughs) Right. And you and you end up making a different show you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that anyone had expected. And it's special and it's unique, which is what you hope with an improv show. Well, I always found like on the road, you know, when we, we would just be so exhausted. I always found when I was the most tired, like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this show? That my yeah. improv was the strongest because it was like, mm. my focus was the fact that I just got to get through this show because I'm so tired that I didn't have time to like worry about all the other crap that you get in your head about, you know, when you're improvising, it was, it was just like, just do it because, and then right. you can go home and go to sleep, <laughs> you know? And then it was right, like, right. I didn't care. No, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Exhaustion can, can get in the way of the judgment you know what I mean? Like if you're you're just so exhausted, you're not judging yourself as you do it. It actually puts you more in the moment when you're sort of half out of your mind. Yeah, and it's like, God, how many times do I have to learn this lesson that it's like you just exactly. gotta <laughs> F it. <laughs> just not care. It's a Zen yeah. thing. It's like the only way to gr- grab it is to not reach for it. Well, it's like that thing you hear thing. it a million times when you do like on-camera auditions. You know, I have found the ones, I mean, I don't book a lot of on camera and, um, and, and it literally though, the times where it's just been like, this stupid audition for this stupid thing that I'm going in for, I don't care, whatever, just go do it. No investment whatsoever. Those are the times where it's like the callback or the bookings, you know, (laughs) because it's like, they smell they smell desperation. They smell you trying too hard. I smell it on people, you know? So it's like when they don't give a shit, there's something really attractive about that. 
hundred percent, hundred percent, sexy indifference. Yep. I have two questions, and then we'll talk about the time we saw Pearl Jam. Um, oh yeah. All right, maybe I've got three questions. So, what's a favorite exercise? This is a two-parter, and it's the the point values are doubled on this question. Let's hope you get to the bonus round. The uh, favorite exercise to teach, or or game, to teach, and favorite to play. I really like. Um, I mean, it's a. It, this is how usually when I'm uh, getting when we're talking about point of view, having a point of view. Um, mm-hmm. I really, it, it's almost like an Armando or ask cat. It's not that structured of an exercise. It's, it's basically just having, um, doing a long form with the class, having each of them take a shot at being the monologist, right? Where I just give mm-hmm. them, I'm just going to give you a word and whatever that evokes. Um, I want you to tell me a true story about it. Mm. I, I really like teaching that exercise because it's like, it, it, it forced the specificity, them not trying to be funny. I don't need this funny, hilarious anecdote. I just want you to give me an honest recollection. You know, the 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 suggestion was bicycle, and that makes you think of uh, you know when you were a kid and your you and your friends would always ride bikes. I just want to hear the specifics of that of that story. Mm-hmm. Everything that you can fill in about it, how, in, including how you felt about it in that moment, like it seems so easy and basic. But and some people definitely come to that more naturally than others. Others people, other people really struggle with that. Where it's like I'm just asking you to relate to me a story about that you thought of based on this suggestion we just got, and mm-hmm. um, and then and then proceed the rest of the class do, a, you know, a, a montage type of thing um, inspired by uh, what was discussed in the monologue. I really love teaching that because, A, it really helps me get to know um, the students a little bit better, not just who they are, but who they are mm. as performers and, and maybe hopefully reveals to them a little bit about what, what about your personal experiences can you bring to the table here? You know, what mm. points yeah. of view can you explore? Um, and I guess the, in the same vein, what I like doing as well as, as teaching is the, the hot spot one, um, where you, you go up there and it's a Q and a year, you, you make a character choice and then you commit to mm-hmm. that character. And we're going to give you a series of questions that we want you mm-hmm. to answer, um, in character. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's always fun. a really fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Because you make those discoveries in answering the question, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't know that about this character." Yeah, and I just said it, so it's true. Yeah, anything that it's point of view driven. Yeah, because you know that's how we arrive at satire. Cause it, and uh, you know, and then uh, and then conversely, doing exercises where it's like, "All right, I want you to take on a point of view that is decidedly not your own." You know, um, mm-hmm. a person. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a person that you know in your life, or a, a composite oh, yeah. of people that you know, yes. um, and and represent their point of view. I um, love that. I do this exercise. Yeah. I'll probably do it this week since we're talking about it, where um, you you have to uh, tell a story, a true story, as yourself at a time you encountered another person that left a deep impression on you that you're somehow mm. altered 
and then they do the monologue and then I have them tell the same story as the other person in the Ooh, story. Ooh, that's a they're very therapeutic. That's like dream analysis. Hundred percent. It is all all improv is therapy. Let's be honest. Oh God. But this one especially, I just love it because some people are like, you know, they're like, I'm taking on the persona of my bully or their parent or you know a teacher who either gave them great advice or gave them terrible advice. You know, it leads them to characters they normally wouldn't play. You know, and they really learn something about themselves, but also maybe a little bit about humanity if they're able to embody the person from their perspective. And I've actually had a few students who just can't do it. They can only talk in the second person or third person. They can never, like, be the person. Oh, that's and interesting. those are the people who fail at improv. And they suck, and you tell them that. <laughs> Save them I tell time them and money. to the face. Yeah. No, I just say don't ever do that character again. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. So um, I want to know, this is another two-part question. Top improv moments, maybe one you saw maybe early on or it could be recent where you were like, that is a great move. I'll never forget that moment. And then one you were a part of. Uh, oh, I know one that I <laughs> one that I uh, improvised. It was a scripted show that had uh, that I did for Second City Theatricals. It was um, the realish housewives of. Your town here. It was a show that we mm -hmm. toured, and it was Kate James and Tim Sniffen had written this script that was kind of a send up of the Real Housewives stuff. Um, so all these just really fun, you know, female characters, and uh, and then one dude who was kind of the Andy Cohen of the of the group. And my particular character was the political figure in this group of housewives, and so when we would. So there were moments in the show where, depending on where we were, you could take, like, local information, local references, which is always fun because it's, like, it's totally pandering, but it's you drop the name of, you know, this restaurant or this street, and it's, like, <clears throat> you know. Oh, I'm sure. They just went crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're always, you know, with corporate shows, too. And there, this is right when Scalia had died unexpectedly, right? Uh, Antonin, mm -hmm. Supreme yeah. Court Justice, 2016, he had died. And I and there was this um, moment in the show where uh, I'm at like a political fundraiser and I'm kind of speaking to the audience as if they're the, the attendees of this fundraiser. And I'm like, seeing this person, oh, hi, seeing this person, oh, hi. And then this is where I could usually take local political figures, like the town mayor or Congress, whatever, and I could kind of insert them into um, my banter at this political fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And like so and so is going to be here to talk to you about such and such. It's going to be wonderful. And Scalia had just died. This was in Seattle at the Moore Theater, and I was very excited because Nirvana had played at the Moore Theater. And so I oh, thought I played it's the same my my good friends Nirvana, my old friend wow. yeah my my childhood friend Dave Grohl, um and uh and I was like oh uh, Justice Scalia is gonna and I look off stage and I'm like what's that oh yes he's not gonna be here <laughs> like I I can't even remember exactly what I said but yeah. I referred to yeah. I mean it was like if in fact I had thought I wanted to say this line. I texted my friend Peter Gross, who is a comedy writer. He, you know, he's written for, you know, a bunch of the late night shows. 
and and I just needed a, a kind of a validation. I was like, is this, is it too soon? <laughs> Does mm-hmm. Scalia qualify for too soon, <laughs> basically? Mm-hmm. Certainly not. <laughs> I need a professional writer's <laughs> approval to be mm-hmm. able to feel okay saying this. He's like, fuck Scalia, no such thing as too soon. <laughs> and I yeah. did it, and, and it was like, <sighs> I mean, I was also in Seattle. Like, could I have done that in yeah. Des Moines? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not, right. but it was Seattle. Right. Um, so that was a moment that I remember thinking of a, of something that that paid off really well, that I felt really good about myself, uh, uh, mocking the That's death awesome. of a Supreme Court justice. So you're welcome. Um, and of then course. seeing, I, I mean, there are just people I can remember seeing that would always, you know, Stephanie Weir, um, you know, who was uh, – uh, an IO and Second City main stage performer. Mm-hmm. Do you know Stephanie? Only through her work. She was um, in Jane, uh, an all-female group, um, and she was also in uh, Weir Das with Bob Dassey, their uh, two-prov. And, of course, she was on Mad TV for a number of years. Yes, I- yeah. I mean, she's yeah. just, to me, one of the, if not the most brilliant improviser I've ever known or seen. Anything that she yeah. would do, and certainly, um, like TJ and Dave, I know that's kind of obvious, but they, I mean, they just oh, cliche answer, it, boo. I that's know, what, I know, what. but they really just do have that thing. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, but in terms of specific moment, I still remember a moment that I remind Mick about that you took me, you know, you were the first one to kind of introduce me to the annoyance, you took me to a show. Mm-hmm. I think it, it might have been Screw Puppies or whatever they their late night improv show was at the time, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. like I said, I remember so little of these things, but I always remembered Mick getting up and doing a monologue. It was right, it was the early night. It was ninety two. Jeffrey Dahmer had mm-hmm. just been, you know, oh, um, yeah, arrested yeah. and everything, and Mick did a whole monologue about yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer and how he found him attractive. And yeah. I mean, it was yeah. Just... I think that was the Bean Can Tour. Oh, okay. Was the name of that show, and it was like a midnight show, and Matt Walsh was in it of Veep fame. Uh huh. Uh huh. I I remember that moment as well. I remember they they introduced it by saying we were having a conversation the other night uh, at a bar, and we said let's finish the conversation on stage. Oh, so we're going to yeah. finish it. And so they were like, we're going to pick up what we were talking about. Like, I find Jeffrey Dahmer attractive or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It just gives this fucking disgusting. Yeah. It was, I mean, that was my introduce, introduction to Mick Napier. Yeah. But it was, but it was yeah. also just like um, all the things to open with. Uh, this. Yeah. Talking about how hot yeah. you find this dude that's just been arrested for. Has been as a, eating people. Eating people, yeah. serial killer. It was beautiful. But then Mick, you know, heads up the most or the least dysfunctional theater. It's interesting, right? It's I mean, it's rather Freudian that if you look at your shadow self, actually, that would be Carl Jung. But if you look at the darkness within you and accept it, you'll be a better person and you're not repressing things. Yeah. And therefore, when you repress things in yourself, you oppress things in others. I think I just solved all the world's problems. You did. I just learned something, Kevin. I think I think. 
This has been my masterclass. Uh, but before we go, one of my all-time favorite moments in my entire comedy life, we, when we were doing Bang Bang, we would do these half-scripted, half-improv things where we had these really long scenarios with running gags, which I loved and I wanted the group to do forever. I was convinced otherwise by other people in the group, but... I don't know why you came out as Barbara Streisand. I don't even remember the scenario, but it was one of these things where like characters kept getting shot in the scenario and then someone from the house would pop up and would be a different, would be a character who is the shooter, something, I'm trying to remember. It was around the time of the LA riots, I think, and there's just a lot of stuff going on. And you were you came from like the back of the house at the no exit. I'm Barbara Streisand. And I knew, like we had, come up with this scenario anyway it just it cracked me up and i still think about it often to this day wow. i'm barbara streisand I'm like why we chose barbara streisand to be involved in whatever scenario <laughs> we were i don't know i don't know but i just was like that's funny it's still funny to me and i can't remember any of the details of oh the that's scenario. so wild isn't that weird just like weird fragments that you can remember from things yeah I'm Barbara Streisand. No, I was going to bring up, have like, you watched the new George Carlin documentary yet? Yeah, on H yeah, I watched both oh, parts. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was just... Yes. I mean... Yeah, a couple of things about it. Incredibly inspirational um, as a comedian, but also as a person that, like, never give up and never stop getting better. The fact that he kept pushing himself forward. And also, the other thing is, like, don't do drugs and... Uh, <laughs> Don't drink and do drugs. <laughs> but you got it. I mean, I got to say for uh, he, he and his wife, I mean, first of all, that relationship was like what it, anybody would strive to have. Um, right. And the right. fact that they did both struggle with the whole drug, hardcore drug stuff and came out the other end and like found each other again and had this whole right. beautiful, you know, second wave of, of a relationship. I mean, that that was incredible. Right. Usually there's no way people can right. survive they seem, that. They seem much, much closer for having gone through the dark times together. Yeah. Versus, yeah. But to your point, uh, yeah. He, a better family. He evolved so over the, he just kind of re, I don't know, reinvention is might be too strong of a word, but he, he did just kind of, and there were periods where he kind of sucked, you know, um, and right. and then would come out on the other end, kind of having transformed his act, transformed himself. You know, like especially yeah. seeing that kind of longevity, how per somebody is able to not just be stuck in the one way that they made them successful. You know, they continue right. to to grow with that. And to that end, have you watched the new Kids in the Hall on Amazon? I'm not. I'm not through the whole thing yet. I'm a few episodes in, maybe three or four. Same. And yeah. the fact that the full frontal nudity, the first episode, <laughs> it was like, oh, that's how you come back after all those years. Like, you think you're edgy, kids? You think you're edgy? Right. Full frontal nudity. But isn't it cool yeah. to see people in our age, maybe they're a couple years older than us, but not yeah. much. And to see... Because it is, I think I saw an article where it's like it's a young per sketch comedy is a young person's game, which I would certainly argue that. But I understand where where 
that assumption comes from because you think of mm-hmm. SNL and all that kind of stuff. And I just, and I didn't go into it knowing I would feel this way, but watching them, these middle-aged men and their new, still their weird kind of outlook on stuff that they had with their original show and that kind of quirk, their quirky brand of humor, but coming from the perspective of people that are middle-aged, you know, with the t- with yeah. the things that they talk about and the character choices that they make is just right. like they, that. They talk so about refreshing. getting older and having heart attacks and yeah. facing death and all that. It's like, absolutely. They're speaking to their audience and they're doing material that is from their point of view, their perspective as they've gotten older and they matured and it's still sharp. They're not doing corny, oh, I'm old jokes. The easy jokes. Yeah. The easy old jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was really, really, really great. And I really did appreciate that. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. It put some put some wind in my sails. Yeah, doesn't it? Because it is. It's yeah. <clears throat> which it kind of makes sense. Most people that become successful comedic actors that might have come from an SNL type of <clears throat> sorry uh, SNL type of background. By the time they're at this point in their life, either they they're completely out of the game, or they went on to have their own television shows or movies or all that kind of stuff. They're not doing sketch comedy just purely as sketch comedy anymore. And it's like, no, maybe we need to, you know. When I go back to IO and I think about, I've been thinking about this a lot because I even felt that way doing She the People. I was the, you know. We had women anywhere from their 20s up. I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s, so we had like 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. I would literally have women my age after shows, which you don't expect, to come up and be like, it was so cool to see somebody. It, it kind of brought the whole representation. While the white lady isn't the one necessarily suffering for lack of representation per se, right. but in this particular right. context, seeing a middle-aged person up there, you know, acting like an idiot, I had women come up and be like, "That was so cool to see somebody my age," you know, like that I related yeah, absolutely. to. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I that's something I. Can, I'm going to try to bring in there's still plenty of people my age that still do this that are in Chicago yep. and I yep. would let's get their point you know when we talk about diversity it's not just people's colors or racial backgrounds or right. Right. you know it, it, there's it's age kinda, too yes. <laughs> there's age and, and uh, economic diversity is also yeah. important absolutely you're going to need one one billionaire, a God willing, executives, <laughs> right, a couple of young. Yeah, I mean that billionaire is gonna. You just tell him it's pay to play. If I just, can go like, down to the board of trade, the same. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, pay to play. Hey, yeah, you wanna you want a night for your team? It's only four thousand dollars. <laughs> it's only four thousand dollars per hour, <laughs> and you you gotta buy a month at a time. That's just the rules of the theater. That's the rules. Same for everybody. It's going to be a hit show. Um, yeah, 100%, 100%. Just a great reminder that you don't have to write for anyone other than yourself. You know, certainly when I improvise with Centralia, you know, we're doing stuff that 
we find funny and we think each other is going to find funny. And a, a large portion of it is what we are assuming the audience wants to hear. And sometimes that takes up more space than it should. And really what the audience is interested in is your own perspective and your point of view. They're looking for something unique to you. That's why they're coming to see you and, and watching the kids. That's just one example of something that recently really resonated with me on that on that front, that like your voice is maybe the most important thing to put into the work. And sometimes it takes time to find your voice. It, it could take five, 10 years before you're really, you know, you, you get past imitating other people and you, um, you know, you find yourself. Is that still the case where like people are in Chicago moving up the second city ladder, you know, five, 10 years waiting for their shot? Yeah. It, I mean, I'll tell you what, these kids these days mm. are so much savvier right? than we were. Because they have the internet. Yeah, and they'll roll through and they'll, you know, if they come from the touring company, maybe they toured a year and then they're itching. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's such a much faster trajectory now and... I do, and I realize it's like you're always gonna feel like when you first discovered it, that was the best it ever was, right? Like mm -hmm. yes. it was like magic, you know. Yeah. Uh, coming yeah. and watching uh, a main stage show, and and then now it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, this is nothing. Like obviously, still some great performers and great people that do it. It's just you know when you've seen. Four million of these <laughs> sketch reviews. Yeah. It's like you've seen you've seen it all before. But I, I. But that being said, I do think when it took longer to kind of percolate, it was a mm. much richer kind of material that those performers were producing by the time they got to main stage. And now, which is reflective of just, again, like we were talking about before, the attention span stuff and the YouTube and TikTok, just that kind of short technology has made us all have shorter attention spans. Mm -hmm. So it's like much faster and much, uh, the satirical point is much more um, stated uh, mm -hmm. than previously it's, it just shows that it hasn't percolated as long. Um, and right. those people right. still go off to do amazing things and, um, and that's great, but it's just, that's the difference. I think it, it it's more of a TV style generation than a theater show, you know? Right. Right. I get that. All right. So here's another question, a two parter. Not to open up a can of worms with more questions, but I got some Who questions. have I slept with over the years in the improv? Just community? give me names and rate them on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> How has your sense of humor changed over the years? And or has it? Or do you still, you know, still head towards the same stuff? It goes it definitely is darker. As I get older, for sure. Mm. And I don't know if that's just, you know, um, uh, you, 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 your own sense of mortality. Um, mm -hmm. 
uh, is just more vivid. Uh, I'm sure that has something to do with it. You mm-hmm. know, when you give fewer shits as you get older, all the stuff that mm-hmm. you gave a shit about when you were younger. Um, yeah, I would say it's definitely gotten darker as I've gotten older, and I- I've definitely gotten bolder as I've gotten older, and maybe that's mm-hmm. because, again, all the fear and insecurities and crap that you when you're a younger performer and you care more about what other people think and right you know you just care less about that as you get older and that has oftentimes been helpful (laughs) in the context of improv for sure yeah so are you going to be directing at io what's 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 your day-to-day going to be like um directing you know that's a great question because that's something that we are broaching that you know, giving what's a track, you know, creating trajectories for people who come through there, rather, uh, whether it's as a student, like, okay, great. I, I'm, I did all these classes. Now what, you know, creating a trajectory for them of like, maybe you get into shows during this early part of the week. And then, and eventually you want to get to where you're in the prime time shows, you know, kind of figuring out that trajectory and same thing mm-hmm. for teachers there. Cause you know, IO isn't one that's necessarily that pr- a place that produces directors per se. Else, mm-hmm. I suppose you could argue Adam McKay, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know that IO <laughs> was where he yeah, yeah, yeah got those chops. But um, it, we'd love to create a trajectory for teachers. Not every teacher necessarily should or would want to be a director, but how can we kind of maybe some of them do want to explore that avenue. I, I personally mm-hmm. would uh, love to. I've directed stuff and I've directed groups for Sketchfest and and stuff like that and, and certainly in, enjoyed. I've directed, you know, my old storefront theater company, little, you know, uh, one-act type plays. Um, while I think a, a traditional theater's artistic directors often do direct many of the shows that they do there, I think it's a little different in this context um, cause there is the thing of like, oh great, you've made me co-artistic director of this theater. It's going to be all of my passion projects, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, we're hoping to develop a, a way that, I mean, obviously people have been creating new shows and putting them up at theaters like IO forever. Um, and a lot of cool, new, interesting stuff comes out of that, um, but we want to create a more of an organized system through which mm-hmm. that can happen. People can develop yeah. new things and develop their directing chops or develop their writing chops or, you know, those types of things. Right. And you'll serve more as like the eye for the space to help them figure that stuff out and push them in the right direction. Because there's two main theaters downstairs i don't know if you've been to the the current io location that they moved into in 2015 down oh no no oh the big expensive one no i have not seen that one yeah they've got two large spaces downstairs and then they've got um you know classrooms and a couple smaller little spaces you know black box spaces upstairs and i know that uh before uh, the pandemic, you know, there were shows going on in every corner of the place that they could. So we'd love to 
bring in uh, outside group stuff that you might not necessarily um, that would I, I would think fall under the umbrella of comedy, but also variety, you know, like get music mm-hmm. in there, get, you know, weird shit that we don't even know about yet. You know, um, right. I, I would love to I would love for it to become become a place that is you're seeing stuff that you don't see at other places. I love that. That's a great vision. I'm so looking forward to see what you and your team do at I.O. I can't wait to see some shows out there. The last time I was in Chicago, um, you took my family and I, including my daughter, who was 11 at the time, to see the Second City. It was a a brand new ETC show. And um, right out of the gate, it was like a, you know, two parents, a meet the parents scene, right? A, A girl was bringing her boyfriend over to meet her parents and right out of the gate they were like are you effing my daughter are you effing my daughter (laughs) and in that moment i was like i'm either the worst parent ever or the best parent you're the best parent ever no i I, get to be exposed to shit like that when they're young where okay yeah maybe you could question if that's appropriate for somebody but it's always i mean with you know winnie's parents are cool and they're gonna you know, contextualize it yeah. for and all that. <laughs> trans actor, and there was a scene about, you know, coming out with a, you know, a father and the kid. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was really well done, very sensitive, but also very funny. And I was like, hopefully this is what my daughter's going to remember is yeah. this scene. And not all the F words uh, right out of the gate. Do you have any Bang Bang memories? Anything from Bang Bang you remember? Well, Good, it's bad, one of those. Ugly. It was. I loved it. I mean, it was short lived. I remember um, because I got into the conservatory, and I think I was moving into one of the levels that would the class would conflict with rehearsals mm-hmm. for Bang Bang, and um, and and so I couldn't do it anymore. But I would still come to the shows. And yeah. uh, when Michael Shannon and Tracy Letts were in it, which like who would have thought? <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, I, it, it was just—I mean, those were such impressionable times. You know, it's when I first got to Chicago, and I, and it, and and I hadn't been trained in improv when I started doing Bang Bang. That was my—it was trial by fire, and it was yeah. so cool. But it was so. You know, like that's what I miss. You know, when you talk yeah. about you have all these years of performance experience, which is amazing, and 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 but that excitement of when you're just kind of discovering it and making it up, and you're with all these and no exit was and all the dudes, those dudes and bands, remember that would come to the show, Marcus. Like, where are yes. they now? Oh my god, that's right. Yeah, I don't know. They're all, maybe they maybe that band was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I Probably did Acid um, from Bang Bang. I remember I did really? it with the yes, not during not during a show, but yeah. afterward because you know afterwards we'd always hang out for hours yeah. and hours and get yeah. oh guess what's gone Heartland Cafe. Oh, it's very. Sad. I did see something about that. Yeah. Um, but I remember hanging out with m- those guys in that band, Marcus and some of those other guys, and and, yeah. and I tried acid. Um, That's right. Yeah, Marcus looked like a rock star, right? Didn't he have that look, like long hair? He was tall, really handsome. 
I'm just like, this guy's going somewhere. Those, they were the best of times. Awesome. Katie Carson. Well, for, yes. All right. I'm going to say goodbye now. I mean it this time for real. No, I so mean it. Well, me. let's stay in better time. The worst with that too. No, I'm the worst, but we have social media. I do like, I consider like liking someone's posts, keeping in touch, but that doesn't really. <laughs> hey, I, I will count it. Believe me because I'm the worst, but you're one of those friends that a long time friends that I may not speak to or talk or, or see for years and years. And then when I do see you, it's like five minutes past. Absolutely. Because the time that we did spend together was important. Yeah. Congratulations on the uh, new position. I think that's amazing. Um, you, you really deserve it. I think you're going to be great for the community. And you're going so. to create some great improvisers and some great shows. Either that or I'll be canceled within six months. Oh my God! If only then then that means someone's paying attention. Exactly, you're nobody until you're canceled. Right? I hope I could get canceled. Please cancel me. I want to trend. I want to trend somewhere. Exactly. Awesome, Kenny Costa. Thanks for coming Kenny's on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Well, that was fun for me. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Katie Cawson. Good luck, Katie, and everyone at I.O. What are you called? Ioans? Not to be confused with Ioans. Those are people from Iowa. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it directly on our page on anchor.fm. Be sure to send us any comments, suggestions at centraliaimprov at gmail.com. We're also on the Twitters and the Instagrams and a website called Facebooks. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. It means a lot to us. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast.